is still fit. And Fabio Carta making a pass on the outside. Kim Dong Sung trying to hold it tight. He's all over trying to the inside. He's making a move. Ono's in second. He gets by Kim Young. One on the other. Kim Dong Sung. It's Ono against Kim. There's bumping. All of the great athletes who I've studied, everyone has this this darkness or this or you call it this pain that they're willing to keep touching. Is America's first male short track gold medalist. Right? Instead of hiding it away huh. and not touching the pain, they're actually willing to touch it. And they use it as a lever. Over time, I believe you can train that. And some people are naturally, they go towards the fire. Some people retreat from the fire. And I think with the training, you are willing to go towards the fire and stand in the fire. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Stanton, your host. And today we have the most decorated American ever at the Winter Olympics. Uh, eight Olympic medals, including two golds. Speaking of eight medals, also eight World Championship gold medals, along with a bunch of others, 21 overall. And last year was inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Apollo Ona. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you on board, man. Um, now, you're out in L.A. right now, uh, still, in, still in lockdown. How are, you, how are you spending your time right now? Well, the time has been segmented, I think, from the first month that we were on lockdown. The conversation was, oh, I'm going to get so much done. I'm going to finish this book. I'm going to finish this digital program that I have been creating and then that fast forward three months in, um, the book was then basically delayed and shelved. So I was no longer working on the book, um, but I was working on you know elements of this, I, I call it this gold medal mindset uh, digital program. And then really just trying to pivot and adapt to the current climate. Adaptation is something that we'll probably talk about as we, as we dig into the show a little bit. Um, yeah, and particularly with regards to that gold medal mindset that you're talking about there. Um, cool name. Didn't know that's what you were calling it, but it is kind of the theme that I had in mind as we explore your journey. Because for for listeners who don't know, speed skating is an incredibly intense, short burst kind of a, an experience, right? But it happens a lot and you do kind of like dangerous stuff. Like I've heard it referred to as kind of like NASCAR on ice, right? It's a pretty right. dangerous full-on thing. And to have excelled in that, you were obviously incredibly talented, but there was a lot that went into your journey before you became an Olympic medalist, right? And you credit your dads for, for a fair bit of that. Are you, are you okay to talk about, I yeah. guess, your early days in skating, how you came to be in it? Sure. So the, the path uh, of kind of Olympic podium was not one that I had my eyes set on when I was very young. I played the traditional American stick and ball sports, things like football, things like basketball, things like baseball, track and field. I didn't even know what short track speed skating was probably until about uh, 1992 when I was about 12 years old. And that was the first time that I had seen short track speed skating on television during the Winter Olympics. Watched them again in 94 with my father. And it was at that time where I said, that looks really cool. I want to try it. Originally, Patty, I wanted to play uh, American football and I wanted to either be a boxer. My dad said no to both of those. Uh, <laughs> they weren't going to happen. So, you know, he had like thrown me in the water essentially and said, why don't you try swimming? You know, water's pretty soft. It's in a controlled environment. Like, I don't want my son to get hurt. My dad was very, very tiger-ish in terms of pushing me towards 
academics early on. Mm-hmm. But he also saw that I had a natural propensity for sport. And so my, my innate um, ability to kind of recreate what I saw from someone else. So if I saw someone, you know, playing with a hockey stick and a hockey puck, I could copy that really fast. If I saw someone running in a certain style, I, would, I had this ability to assimilate that information and then use that in my own way and then replicate that. Well, that's really interesting. There's a, there was a baseball player I worked with who, when I asked him one time, how would you identify, you know, who you want to draft, right? And he said there's, there's two things. One, they eat, sleep, and live the game. And secondly, they're able to mimic their three favorite players. Like say, who's your favorite player? Show us his batting stance. And they can do it. There's this innate like physical almost mirroring effect that you've just described perfectly there. Now, that suggests some level of talent, but as we're going to find out throughout the rest of your story, it's not all about talent, right? There was a lot more that went into your journey. Yeah, I think, I think talent gets you, it's table stakes, right? So it gets you to the starting line. And, mm-hmm. and you know, at the age of 14, um, you know, I had received skates from my father. I was skating in these local ice hockey rinks in and around the Pacific Northwest where I'm from, Seattle, Washington. And at the time, you know, I didn't know how to speed skate. I had gone to the local roller skating rink and, you know, that was like my experience in terms of skating fast, but I didn't, I knew nothing about ice speed skating. And so throughout this natural progression of me just learning how to skate by my father dropping, uh, driving us from Seattle all the way to Vancouver, BC, which is about two and a half hours North drive. I would watch the Canadian skaters skate in these local competitions. And at the time, the Canadians were very strong. And we would see this incredible display of athletic artistry that I had never experienced before living in Seattle because there was no one who was an Olympic athlete there. And so by watching and seeing that accelerated my ability to process this information in a way that, you know, looking back, it was actually remarkable. Without that, I think, first touch of inspiration and seeing those Canadian athletes, I probably would have never continued on this path. But because I saw what was possible, both in terms of speed, power, the way they leaned over at these impossible angles, like on this piece of metal that is 1.1 millimeters thick, it was, it didn't look real. And it was mind boggling in so many, in so many ways. And throughout that process, I found that I had a natural ability to perform well under pressure. Um, but it was inconsistent, right? I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was 14 years old. So what kind of yeah. pressure do you have? Uh, and then throughout some of these local competitions that I was competing at a junior development coach from Lake Placid, New York, which is on the other side of the country. It's in upstate New York, um, came to my father during one of these local American skating competitions said, we think you're, th- we think that your son has an amazing potential here to grow and go beyond what is just happening and him just messing about on the, on the ice. We think in a structured training environment, he could potentially go and make the Olympic team. And my dad's like, amazing. We're in, um, they had to pull some strings because were you, were you like that? I didn't even know what that meant. I mean, I was (laughs) Olympic training center. Like that, that is, those things don't even mean anything to me at that stage. At 14. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I knew what the Olympics were, you know, we had watched it, but I didn't, I didn't know what was going to go into that process. And so my father had bigger, grander visions and dreams of me doing something spectacular in my life. Um, And he had always pushed me in some capacity, in some area, whether it was academics, whether it was in sport, he was just, he was on me and he pushed me. And I think that, it, you know, partially because of that growing up in a single parent household, you know, I was the only child. My father, 
you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. So every penny that he had was spent putting food on the table, a shirt on my back, or giving me some opportunity to participate in the swim club practice or the local skating rink practice. Like that's, that was our life. And when he gets this invite from this coach who tells him, hey, you know, your son, who's 14 years old right now, he's actually legally not allowed to join the training program because you have to be 15 as a minimum age requirement. They pull some strings. They talk to some people there and say, we think, you know, none of this means anything to me, by the way. Like, I've got right. no idea. I'm just like messing around on the ice and beating athletes. So we get this invite. My father explains to me, hey, I've seen the type of kids and the environment that you've been hanging out with here in, you know, south of Seattle. I don't like it. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it's positive. We have an opportunity here, Apollo, for you to go live and train in the Olympic Training Center and do something amazing. He didn't know if I was going to make the Olympic team. He hoped, but he thought this was a great chance and that one chance that he shouldn't and, and was not going to throw away. And so my father then essentially tells me I'm going to go to this training camp and this training program. And I, of course, say, no, I'm not. It's the summer in Seattle. I've got no interest in going all the way on the other side of the country. I don't know anybody there. I've got no friends. And like, like what? Like, where's Lake Placid? I actually had to look on a map. I had no idea. So he, he drives me to the airport. This was like two months later. Um, drops me off. Tells me if I don't um, enjoy myself for the first month, I can come back home. It's almost like I was going to boarding school in a yeah. sense, right? Like I was getting, being, basically being shipped off. And I, I think looking back, my father was in a point where he was like, look, like I see potentially directionally where this kid's energy could be going in a negative perspective, or mm -hmm. he can interrupt that potential process and put me over here, which he knows that direction. He knows the fundamental skill sets that I would be acquiring and learning through throughout that realm. And then, and then we went into, uh, sorry, I went into the, the airport, um, you know, area and my dad drives off. I then immediately go to the payphone back when we had payphones and I call a friend and I say, Hey, I'm supposed to go to New York today. However, I'm not going to go. <laughs> and, and then, so for the next 10 days, I bounce around from house to house all while my dad believes I'm so upset at him for pushing me and pushing and sending me over there that I just don't call him. And I've got this whole year planned out thinking like, well, I've got two days here, one day here, three days here at this front. I'm pretty good for the year. I, you were going to go a year without telling dad. I, I, basically, I was just running away, right? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it, it's unbelievably stupid. So <laughs> yeah, unbelievably stupid. I wasn't going to say that, but you can say Yeah, it. in my head, it somehow made sense. Um, and so my dad gets this call from the junior development coach, uh, the, the guy who actually invited me, the coach who invited me. And he tells my father, uh, we, you know, we haven't heard from you. Obviously, no one came on that flight that you had sent us information about. Um, are you still planning on sending your son out here? The offer and invitation is wide open. Please don't throw this opportunity away. We, we, we really want the chance to work with your son. And my dad's very confused. He's like, what? What the hell are you talking about? You guys must have lost my son. And, you know, and my dad's very thick Japanese accent, broken English. And finally, he finds out somehow whose house I was at. My father drives there, uh, picks me up, and then for the next seven days, we're fighting back and forth about this incredible opportunity that he's trying to tell me about, and I just don't want to hear it. And finally, he packs my bags, and we go back to the airport again, and he parks the car, walks into the airport with me, goes to the gate, gets on the plane with me, and you know, obviously, <laughs> then he, I, I understood that he was going to deliver me properly to the coach. 
And then we arrived in, into Albany, New York, <clears throat> and we made the drive to Lake Placid. And from that point on, you know, he, he walked right up. It was like, maybe it was like seven or eight at night uh, in the Olympic Training Center. And he walks right up to the guy and he's like, good luck. And he turns around <laughs> and he goes, he goes um, and then that was my entrance into the sport. Um, needless to say, I had a great coach who was very good at coaching younger athletes. And at certain, you know, I, I wasn't in great shape. I, I, had, I had natural raw ability and talent that I was gifted with, I think. But it wasn't like I understood the level of complexity that the sport had or the potential that was there above and beyond just those table stakes of walking to the start line and racing against other 12, 13, 14-year-old athletes. Yeah. But you get that, on the you get on a fast track here, like excuse the pun, but you you all of a sudden go from just entering this Olympic training program to becoming national champion, like within that year, or, or like very quickly, right? Yeah, it, it was it was absurd actually how fast we accelerated. So, what this coach was really good at with me was identifying the areas that he knew that I needed to grow upon. Now I'm a growing young kid who is just strong and with a little bit of weight training, like you see astronomical gains in performance. Like it's unbelievable. And, you know, with some technical training, with consistency, with just education around lifestyle, around sleep and around food and around recovery, uh, we saw quantum leap levels of performance. And also it was this combination of me just being so playful on the ice. It, you know, at the age of 14, it was, it was really fun. It was fun to skate. It was fun. It was just fun. I just remember being like, just having fun every single day being there. And, you know, eight months into the training, seven months into the training program, which is, by the way, it's like 24 7, right? You're all, you're, you're living in a dorm atmosphere with other Olympic athletes and Olympic hopefuls. And you're going to the ice, you're doing training early in the morning, going to school throughout the end of the day, and then doing your afternoon training in the afternoon. Uh, that was the life. It was, it was very simple, very regimented. And it taught me a lot of structure. Uh, it wasn't like that in the beginning, but you know, eventually I found my way by living there and seeing my competitive edge and, and hunger to want to win. And that, that, was, that was also pretty apparent. Mm -hmm. And then when I showed up the, at the 1997 World Team Trials, so this is basically the national championships. So all of the senior, junior, essentially anyone who wants to have a spot on the world team, they only give five spots on the world team for men and women each. Uh, you go and compete in these trials. I ended up actually winning the trials um, and doing so in such convincing fashion. I internally was thinking in my head, like, is this it? Like, is this all that we have? Very, very cocky, very naive, but also just very confused because I was like, I don't understand how that guy who's 35, who's been skating for 20 years, why he can't beat me. Like, that just seemed awkward and weird to me. And, and, you know, looking back now and seeing how I skated and seeing the technical aspects of the sport, and, and it was just, it was fascinating to see how that, how that grew. Uh, and that was my entrance into the world of short track is when I made that first team, I then started traveling on world championship teams, competing in Nagano, Japan for the world championships, going to China, going to Italy. And that began this like almost 15 year career of, of being on the team. Amazing, amazing journey. And like you said, it's like a storybook almost in terms of how it unfolds. But here is where the story gets really interesting. At that point, particularly with the, with the reference to Nagano, Japan, and your family and your dad's expectations and hopes, a little, little twist in the tail comes along and you don't make the Olympic team. For a kid who is the wonder kid and blowing up, 
you fail there. And then what happens next is, is hugely interesting to me and I think to a lot of the listeners, particularly around dealing with failure and dealing with setbacks. Absolutely. So after my experience of making that first team in, in 1997, uh, it, which was incredible in so many ways, we, I come back home to the off season, during the off season. Now, this is the 1997 to 1998 season. So this is technically called an Olympic year. So this is the most important year training cycle that you can possibly imagine. Um, the trials were going to be held in December of that, of, of, two, of 1997. Mm-hmm. The Olympic Games would be February 1998. So this was March. Uh, so this was, yeah, this was March of, two, of, of 1997. I am back home in Seattle. Everyone goes to their hometowns and begins their off-season training cycle. And their off-season training cycle is essentially building up this incredible aerobic and anaerobic base of strength so that their body can peak by the time the Olympic trials are happening in December. Yeah, because off-season off yeah. technically means like you're not competing, but you're still working, right? You're building. The Olympic year. Yeah. yeah, the off-season actually is the most important part of an entire training season. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. <laughs> off season to me was a light switch. It meant the off season. Yeah. I went home. Yeah, I'm 14, going through puberty, smashing Taco Bell and fast food like on a daily basis, not doing any training at all. And I'll always remember this. So three and a half months into the off season training, the head coach, then his name was Jeroen Otter, who's he's now coaching the. the um, the Netherlands. But at the time, um, I would have to be training in Colorado Springs at the National Olympic Training Center, not the Junior Development Training Center mm-hmm. in Placid. That coach was then moved to be an assistant coach under the National Team Training Center in, in Colorado Springs. And I will always remember the day, the first day that I showed up and reported for our official training camp. Um, we went in and uh, you know, my, my buddies will always tell me, they were like, you took your shirt off uh, to do the body composite test. And we were all like, well, that's one guy who's not going to make the team. Because wow. I had gained so much weight and I hadn't done anything. And I, I, by the way, I didn't know this. Like I was so like, I was just not even, I wasn't dialed in in any capacity. And so I arrive also unwillingly I didn't want to go to Colorado Springs. I wanted to go back to Lake Placid and train with my old coach under that environment. Now I'm training with the big boys. Like there's, you know, these guys are training with pain, self-doubt, insecurity. They're training with real emotions that you develop as you get older. Mm -hmm. I'm still 15, 14 years old. I don't know anything other than this is just fun and I'm just kind of messing around. And so I arrive and, and essentially for the whole year, Patty, I, I just go through the motions, not committed, not determined, no assertion, no Thinking intention. that it's just going to happen because of what's happened so far? No, like all, I would say almost self-sabotage in huh. a way. Um, not entirely uh, aware of that, but almost thinking in a way like, you know, how, how close to the fire can I play without getting burned right. in, in a sense? And also, I, I genuinely did not want to be there. At the, when I was at that age, I had this fear of putting myself out there and then failing. Right. 
And it was very easy for me psychologically to say, well, if I only give 80%, at least internally, I can say, well, if I had given 100%, maybe I would have won. Yeah, it wouldn't reflect badly on you if you're like, I didn't succeed because I did 80% as opposed to I gave it everything and I failed, so I must be whatever. Yeah, it is a, it, it is a very um, dangerous cop-out psychological method of dealing with um, goals. Hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, right? I'm, the only reason why I'm able to articulate this today is because I've, I've just been, I've done so much deep work on myself is to be able to understand why I did what I did and those things. So I arrived into the Olympic, the Olympic trials um, in 97 and I had already in my head told myself I was not going to make the team. I had basically created a self-defeatist mentality of saying, I'm not going to make the team. I'm not good enough to make the team. Right. I don't want to make the team. And so I go through that Olympic trials and, you know, a year prior, I was number one in the U.S. In this competition, I finished dead last, absolutely dead last. Which that's is a bad year. That's like a knife in there. I probably could have gotten like 10th, maybe like 11th. But I wanted to go like, I, I think subconsciously, I wanted to really, really fail, really hit rock bottom. Um, and so you know, I felt extremely defeated. I heard the chatter in and around the ice rink from the other parents who had seen me a year prior from the coaches. And it was very negative. It was like, oh, that kid, you know, it's, you know, that kid's got no focus. He's, it, it was emotionally painful, right? To, to, to know what I thought what I was going to do was, ah, just, I won't try that hard and, and maybe I can still make the team. But if I don't, then I, at least I can have that excuse to lean on. But it was the complete opposite. Instead, it was, holy shit, I've got this deep, resounding feeling of like almost embarrassment, like really feeling embarrassed that I didn't put it all out there. Like I just, right. didn't, I didn't even give a fraction of what I could have given. So my father saw this and he saw this pattern that he didn't want to become a habit. And so he was, he was obviously really upset that I didn't make the team, but more so he was really upset about the, the mentality that was brewing there that he didn't like. Now, my father came to the U.S. with no money, Japanese immigrant, didn't speak a single word of English, uh, and began his life really the hard way. Blood, sweat, and tears, trying every single job you can possibly manage, imagine, just trying to survive. Forget about thriving. Like, he was just trying to survive and not have 15 roommates, right? Like, situation. And then he saw me a kid who's born in the U.S., who's got this amazing opportunity and gift and essentially and effectively was throwing that away. Right. And he was pissed. He was really pissed. Did that and lead to your, like, you said the knife in the side and your, the emotion that you were feeling of embarrassment. Was it, did that lead to a, a feeling of, like, guilt towards your dad or anger towards yourself? Like, was there extra layers on top of just feeling a bit embarrassed? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's multiple layers of disappointment in myself, uh, disappointment from my father, right? Growing mm -hmm. up in a single parent household, as you can imagine, you, you pr I probably only ever wanted the approval from my dad. And I was not getting that in any capacity that entire year because of the attitude that I was putting forth. And it was it, emotionally, I was also very confused and very unsure of what I was doing, why I was doing it. I had never tasted defeat, I guess, in that realm mm. yet because I had been pretty, I had been pretty naturally talented. So, uh, you know, what you do in the face of defeat, I always say is, is very defining. 
Um, right. And this is a real defining moment in talking about that storybook and this yeah. little twist in the tail. Like w- when I read this part of your story, it really conjures to mind to me a, a picture like a, a scene in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker goes off by himself to be on a planet by himself with Yoda maybe or just by like real introspection and vulnerability and like you said, some deep work on what am I really doing here? Can you share that? I think your dad actually led you there straight after this. You've fallen flat on your face for the first time and had failure and embarrassment and all of these emotions. As a young teenager still, it's a lot to digest, but you went out and, and you did something fairly exceptional that really was a turning point for you. Yeah, So, it, and this was 100% credit to my father where you know, he had seen that pattern and he, he, my father at the time, you know, he tells me that he, now he tells me that he didn't feel like he had any other options. And I'll explain what that means. We fly back to Seattle after the trials. My dad tells me on the way home that uh, he was going to take me to the cabin that we used to spend a lot of our uh, holidays on. And mm-hmm. this is a cabin that is, it's not our cabin. We just rent the cabin. Uh, at the time, it was called the Iron Springs Resort. And it, it's now been taken over by a family and it's renovated and it's beautiful. At the time, it was old. Not beautiful. It was not beautiful. I mean, there's, it, it's a beautiful scent. I mean, it's what you would imagine a cabin in the woods to look like. Uh-huh. Like if you just like went out hiking one day and you saw an old cabin that was, you know, functional, but there's just not much there. That's what, like one of these upset. Yeah. And so when I say the word resort, and I say this in all due respect, it was nothing close to being a resort. There's no resort amenities in any sense. Of <laughs> it was world. a last resort for your dad. Yeah, it was a last resort. And exactly. And I remember being there in the wintertime. It rains almost all day, every day. It gets dark at like 4.35 p.m. And it was just a time where my dad said to me, you're going to stay here at this cabin. Yeah, I have food and I have clothes. I had been there so many times. I knew my way around, you know, this area. It's right on the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, three and a half hours southwest of downtown Seattle. And he tells me, you're going to stay here for as long as it possibly takes for you to recognize and understand which path and which direction you're going to go in life and how you are going to go in that direction, more importantly. And what he was really saying to me was, you just threw an opportunity away because of your lack of effort and commitment and dedication towards something. I don't care that you didn't make the team. It's the way that you didn't make the team. That's what I care about. And I don't want you to go throughout your life in other areas, whether it's academics, whether it's in business, whether it's in school, with this type of defeatist attitude. And also this type of an attitude of where my dad didn't want me to be okay losing right? Like he, he wanted it to affect me. He wanted it to fire me up. He wanted right. it to change psychologically that switch that goes on that you are now a man on fire. He, was, he, he didn't see that in me. And for someone who struggled in this country for so many years, uh, that was important to have, right? This, this, mm-hmm. this survival mechanism. And so my father literally drops me off at this place. I'm 15 years old at the time. There's leaves, no one around. Leaves you alone. It's just- oh, he leaves me. He drives back to Seattle. Three and a half hours, drives back to Seattle. I've got no cell phone. I've got no video games. There's no internet. There's none of that stuff exists. It's just literally me and nature, which like I fully love that now. Like I look forward to those moments now. But (laughs) back then, no, like you have no friends. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, why I'm there. 
I also am very uncomfortable talking to myself, right? Because you're, when you're placed in that type of environment, you're now, you're now trying to figure out and understand like, why did my dad put me here? Does he hate me? Why did I not win? Why did I not, you know, like, like and it's, by the way, it, the depth of this texture and layers, of these conversations are, they're not as deep as I'm able to articulate now, but back then emotionally, it was more just like, what the hell do you want to do? Like, you know, why did you do this? And that began this like seven day mindlessly just kind of going through the motions of training, going for long runs. I had like a small stationary bike that I had set up in the living room, um, uh, which was the bedroom. Um, and I just, I, I, I didn't talk to a single person for like nine days. Do you feel like there, there was a process there that you, not that you knowingly stepped through and maybe knowing now more than you knew then, like that you, you know that I did this in day one and day two and day three, or was it really just like your dad left you there by yourself, hoping that you not hoping, asking you to say, to choose something, but to actually commit to something, right? That's right. It was an organic thing for you. Like how did that process, you were there for about a week, you say, right? Nine days. Talk us through what happened there. Yeah. So when I was at the cabin, uh, you know, the first couple of days, just, emotionally still distraught from the experience of the Olympic trials. So I was still feeling that pain. Uh, and then also the pain around like, why is my dad forcing me to be here? So like a deep, I wouldn't say hate, but a, a deep dislike for my dad started to brew because I wanted to point the finger at him. It's your fault that I'm here. You're, you know, you don't love me enough and you put me here at this cabin not knowing that it was like real tough love. And my dad felt like there was no options because I wasn't listening to anything that anyone was telling me about the potential that I had. So he felt that I had to find the answer myself. And, you know, each day I kind of was just mindlessly going for these runs. I had like, you know, it was raining every single day. So I had huge blisters like in my shoe, in my, my feet. And it was just, it was, I was just in pain and I was just in physical pain, mental pain. I started journaling, kind of writing down my process and what I wanted to do. You know, I, I had, I think at the core level, my, I knew that my father wanted me to be pursuant of the Olympic path and journey. I think I felt that, but I deeply also felt that I wanted to make my own decision. And there right. was a couple of times where I was like, do, do I really want to do this? Like, do I even really enjoy it? Uh, and then finally, on the final day that I was there, and I say the final day because this is the day that I kind of came to this epiphany. And, and essentially, it wasn't like there was a huge parting of the clouds and like there was a lightning strike and like the answer was there. Um, it was just a day that I just decided on this long run where I was completely miserable that what am I going to do? And what's that light switch and commitment level going to be? And I decided, like, I am going to make a decision. And I run back to the, the cabin. I go to the payphone and I call my dad, which by the way, the payphone was like a mile away from the cabin. <laughs> um, it was hilarious. Like I had to like, yeah. And so I, I go to the payphone. Uh, I call my dad. I tell him I've made a decision. My father doesn't ask me what the decision is. Instead, he says, great. I'll be there in like four or five hours or something. Drives, comes, picks me up. On the way home, I tell him and explain to him that I'm going to give this Olympic chance um, another shot and mm -hmm. you know this, this Olympic vision and dream one more, one more try. And then he starts to ask me kind of deeper questions. So my dad, who's a very philosophical person, 
how are you going to do that? Right. Tell me about what is going to be different this time around. And I've got no answers, you know, but, but I think what he was doing is he's just planting these seeds of, Hey, that's great. You got this goal. Amazing. That's a great metric and tool for you. But what's the process of what is going to change? Tell me yeah. how you are going to deliberately enact true transformation in pursuit of that goal. And I then was shipped back off to Lake Placid, which, which I was willingly open to do. And there were several other athletes who also did not make the Olympic team. We're also training there. And we are watching the Olympics while we are training. So that's really painful. That's right? sting, yeah. It's 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 stung, but also it it was a really good sting. It was this like, like just grit your teeth. And I remember being next to a friend of mine who was training. His name is Mike Corman, and we were doing these crazy bike intervals, uh, pure anaerobic threshold, and like pain, a lot of pain, physical, a lot pain. of pain. And and the workout was was I don't remember the workout exactly, but it was like some ridiculous workout. And I remember looking over at Mike, and we were watching the Olympics, by the way, at, while we're doing it. We're watching the Olympics while being on the bike. And I remember looking at, at Mike and him looking at me, and it was just like this, this, this word or this sentence that was not said verbally, but like we just knew. It was like this nod of, today's the day that we are going to crush ourselves on this training session. We are going to punish ourselves for all of that time that we didn't do what we should have done. And I mean an hour into it, Mike is th throwing up, just vomiting all the place. I, I didn't, I didn't throw up very easily, so I didn't, but it was so, it was just, it was the dumbest of workouts you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it's like, how, like, why don't we do like, you know, 50 times three minutes anaerobic threshold, you know, and, and, <laughs> and do like. For, the, for, the, for those who don't train at a, yeah. at a, at that sort of level very often, that's like just pure. Think about your lungs burning pretty much for the entire session, right? Like that's kind of your lungs, your legs, everything is going to yeah, burn for the whole it, time. Yeah. I mean, it, it made no sense in terms of sports science or, but <laughs> this was, this was purely a, just a mental exercise. Mm. And on that day, it was very clear to me that I was willing to truly commit. I had told my father that I was willing to commit, but I was there, but it was on that training session, Patty, that I remember with great detail, the feeling and the look that I had, Mike was to my left, <clears throat> looking at him, him looking at me and just being like, yep. It's real. This is real. And, yeah. and, and we deserve to be here right now, not there. We don't deserve mm -hmm. to be there. We deserve to be here. And because we deserve to be here, we are going to make sure that we maximize uh, every training session by the time we got to the world trials. And I made a promise to myself while watching everybody uh, writing down in my little journal, I made a promise to myself and I had said to myself, I am not going to call anyone when I get home. I am going to truly become obsessed about this sport and I'm going to commit myself to a level that I have never known in prior years. That's so interesting that, that you like, you've mentioned along this, it's a fascinating journey and I hope the listeners are enjoying following along at this point. There's been a number of things that have come up, though, and given that you've been at the top level for so long, you've been around people at that level as well and observed a lot, and you've gone in and studied it afterwards as well. The, what stands out to you as the one or two things you like? That's what, for someone to be the best or like 
that's one of the most important characteristics of reaching this level and of staying here. Like you've said, you made a choice, that, that it was your choice. It wasn't dad making you do it. You, you said you committed. Uh, you said you were accepting of the fact that like, yeah, I deserve to, like I'm not going to avoid the pain. You actually moved into the pain. Like there's so much there. Mm. Such a rich tapestry of like these are some characteristics that people talk about often. What do you see as the number one or two? Like these are the things that people have to have mentally to be an Olympian. Wow. Uh, the, I think to be an Olympic athlete, there's, there's, there's obviously the physical talents associated. However, I'm just a huge fundamental believer in your mindset and that, that what that is, what that essence can be. There was many athletes throughout my career who had weeks or weekends that they were superior to me. Maybe genetically they were superior as well. They just didn't put in the time and the consistency and the effort and the work. And I just believe that's where the real sweet spot is. Now, obviously, there's a genetic component here that can't be dismissed. Like, but I'm assuming that you have some level of genetic ability for this sport. And you, you create this mindset that allows you to truly maximize your performance in every possible way the way that you look at training, the way that you enjoy the training. Um, I felt something that was quite early on was that most of my teammates hated training. They actually didn't like it. Uh, I just thought that was really weird because I was like, how could you? I started to really enjoy the training. I loved it. You enjoyed the, the pain or the knowing that like I'm doing this is getting me closer to where I want to go? A little bit of everything. Hmm. I, I like the fact that we were about to do a training session that was so hard that half of the team would just quit. I, I liked it. And that to me was like, okay, now we're getting into, now we're peeling back the layers to see that who really wants it. Yeah. Who wants it's to a, be here. It's interesting. I, I know, I mean, my sporting career was nothing like yours, but I remember as a teenager particularly, and even once I was in the pros, being – like it would rain, it would hail sometimes. And that was when I liked going for a run. That was when I liked training because I knew other people weren't doing that or I knew that yeah. they'd like kind of cut the corner. Yeah. So you're, you're saying it's that like ability to do what others want is one of the biggest elements of being great in that level. So I, I, I look at all of the great athletes who I've studied. Everyone has this, this darkness or, this, or you call it this pain that they're willing to keep touching, right? Instead of hiding it away huh. and not touching the pain, they're actually willing to touch it and they use it as a lever. And that comes in the form of whether you look at Michael Jordan, whether you look at Michael Phelps, whether, whoever that person is, I believe there's some deep, deep trauma there, micro trauma, whatever it is, that is a, the driving force. And it can be as simple as so insecure, they have to assert dominance over everyone else to have that level playing field of, I feel good enough. It can be as right. simple as that. I've just seen a pattern in every athlete that I've ever known have some semblance of that. Right. And for me, it was, I had a deep fear of failure, uh, partially because of what happened prior to me not making that Olympic team, but then also not making that Olympic team, that pain psychologically at the age of 15 was deeply ingrained in mm. my soul. Mm. And I never wanted to feel that pain ever again because it was almost as if I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. 
And so that began this pro. So when I look at an athlete, I want to know what happens when, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't care what they look like when they're fresh and they're peaked. I want to know, show me what you look like on your worst day under the worst conditions, under the worst environment. And I want to see how they show up. And I, it may, it may not be natural, but over time, I believe you can train that. And some people are naturally, they go towards the fire. Uh-huh. Some people retreat from the fire. And I think with the training, you can equal that playing field to some degree where some people are willing to go towards the fire and stand in the fire for and a long period of time. And you're saying training as in like, I'm, I'm picturing touching that pain, like you said, is one thing. Doesn't it like wear off? Doesn't it go away if I keep tapping into that? Eventually, I drain my fuel of I'm not scared anymore. I don't have that fear. What is it? Your, your fear never goes away. Well, my fear has never gone away. Okay. I, I, can, I can speak from experience. My fear is still there. I've just, my relationship with that fear has drastically changed where hmm. it hasn't become so all-consuming that it can potentially be toxic. So, you know, the business of sport cares about nothing else except for your performance on paper. Right. In its essence, which is a whole new thing that is is that we're we're unpacking and talking about today, um, I, I'm talking about the training of the consistency of what happens. So they always say, you know, a fighter is when you push them or you punch them. What they what do they naturally do? If they back way off, most likely this is this. By the way, I have no idea if this is true. This is a friend of mine who's a boxer told me this. Um, and if they back away, then the, maybe that person wasn't meant to be a fighter. If they actually go towards you, that's the person you want to start training. And so I just believe that maybe sport and short track speed skating, by the way, which is not like a, you know, this is a new sport. It's not like it's huge, like soccer or track and field. But I still, I still think the mental side of the sport is still the most important. And because hmm. I've just seen what happens when you're dialed in mentally. It, it, the, por- the, the performance increases are so... They're so big that they cannot be, they can't be disregarded. I mean, I, I felt them in my own life. When I wasn't dialed in in sport with all the tools, I wouldn't perform well. When I would be and not have all the tools and I'd be sick and I would be tired and I wouldn't be peaked and I had equipment problems, but I was in the zone, I was still able to win. You can't deny that. I mean, I'm, I'm operating at 50% capacity. I can still win. So there's something here in this between our ears that we're starting to get and understand and measure the power. I think we're just scratching the surface. Right. I feel that we are just, I feel like there's so, we are at the tip of the iceberg and there's so much depth there of power and strength that can be derived that, um, uh, that's what's exciting moving forward. Like the athletes in 50 years are going to be pretty spectacular. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you mentioned there a, a couple of times you said the business of sports and the fact that your your own approach and development to this part of your game, of, of your performance, you credit a lot of your success to it, right? But just taking it away from sports, because a lot of listeners may not be athletes, right? There are going to be Plenty of people who use their body to do their work, but maybe not at the level of a of a short track speed skater, right? If if you were in a boardroom or you know, you do your work as a consultant to businesses, and if you're talking to a surgeon, you're talking to a musician, talking to someone in the military, like, do you think that what you've 
well, not even do you think, have you applied the same approach to your business decisions? Because you're an investor as well. You're a New York Times bestselling author. Like you've done some stuff other than being a badass speed skater. Has that carried over? Does it apply just as well off the rink for you, off the ice? I believe some of the attributes are transferable across any career path. There's many skill sets that I didn't have naturally when I retired as an athlete that I learned the hard way. And I've had some great wins and I've had some really, really bad losses. I think the difference today is my ability to manage those losses are totally different. I just, I look at it from a different perspective. I, I enjoy the process of pursuing a new venture, a new opportunity. So when I talk to, and I'm in a boardroom talking to someone, um, most of the time, you know, they're dealing with all these ancillary stresses in their life that detract away from their ability to become truly present and maximize their real ability to be at their best. And that's true, right? So we have short kind of small snippets of this experiences throughout our lives, but we aren't able to replicate them because of many different variables, family, life, money, stresses, all these, ta- all, all these, all these, I call them taxes in your life that always are kind of grabbing away at your whole, your whole pie. Mm-hmm. And the, the one way that I have felt that has been very powerful was just training my mind and being intentional in a way that has a routine that I've created a new form of habits and new form of human behavioral patterns. And that can be, I know what I need to do as Apollo Ono, even though I'm 10 years retired, I know what I need to do in terms of lifestyle Mm -hmm. that helps me be my best in the boardroom, presenting to that surgeon, to that executive, standing on stage, talking to a group. There's certain things that I know that I hold very, very sacred to me, routine in the morning, routine in the evening, and then overall mindset, having gut checks to ensure, are you doing the things necessary to give you maximum performance there? And then also, is it fun, right? And and this is something that I've kind of reintroduced into my life again, was it's very easier to kind of squint your, your, your brow and get very laser focused in. At some point, you have to enjoy elements of that process. And if you don't, that's when I think you start to get burned out and the intensity starts to flicker, which is what you don't want. You want the intensity to to kind of go like this in these waves, but um, those who are constantly pressing on the button of pain, reminding themselves that they aren't good enough or they have to show up or whatever that is that's driving them, that makes them so obsessed, uh, it can get tiresome and wear out. And that's why I think that this, you know, like anything else, the mind and the body are elements where they need to have rest and recovery, short sprints, long endurance races. It's just like any other element that you're training. You, it, it can't just be pedal to the metal, full gas, 24-7. I mean, you will just lose the intensity. It, mm. it, it's, it, I call it the magic, right? Like when, when something happens to you in your life and you're either so pissed off or you're so disrupted and sad, it forces and enacts real transformation and change. Well, shit, man, why did you have to have that pain to do that back then? Because you can't keep repeating that feeling, that that failure or that loss or that pissed off feeling. We know people in all of our lives who are just angry and they've been angry for a long time, right? But it's not like it's consistently progressing them towards a different era. So I just believe there's nothing wrong with having that emotional state in those times, 
but like anything, it is a tool. Being selective and deliberate about when you access that. Yeah. And then being open about it, like knowing and recognizing, hey, this is my pain. This is why I am the way I am. I don't have to be that way. I can consistently change. I'm intentionally, deliberately enacting certain processes and frameworks in my life so that I can be at my best. Because when I'm at my best, I feel better. My family's good. My friends are good. And that's the life I think that we all want in, in the end. It's really, really, really fascinating insight. Now, you have described an incredible journey of introspection, of failure, of growth. Um, That sounds like it continues on the daily these days. But along the way, was there, it sounds like your dad helped you early on. Were there other people who helped you become more aware and better at that, at at understanding your mindset and getting okay with it and, and turning it into a tool rather than something that just spontaneously combusted sometimes? So when I, <clears throat> to continue that story, Patty, and, and yes, uh, when I was 15, after I'd made that world team, <clears throat> I went back home. I trained very hard. Essentially, I showed up in great shape. Now I was living back in Colorado Springs. <clears throat> and uh, we had hired an assistant coach who also was a sports psychologist. He was a studying student sports psychologist. So he was getting his PhD from, or he was studying co- at the Colorado College uh, sports psychology. And this guy, he was like, wasn't many years older than I, uh, or sorry, older than the oldest guy on the team. And he had this like deep fascination with Eastern philosophy and meditation and mindfulness. And by the way, back then in 1998, we were like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like, this sounds like, <clears throat> this sounds woo. completely bogus. Woo woo magic stuff. Very right? woo woo. This guy, David Creswell, comes into our group and essentially says, who here is writing in a daily journal? And we're like, eh, a couple of us sort of hands up. And then he's like, who here practices uh, visualization and meditation? I didn't even know what that was. Literally, I'd heard that word like five times in my life, right? Maybe. And, uh, you know, for weeks on end, he was just hammering the team to try to get people to come do these practiced and seated, seated meditations and mindfulness exercises with him. Because he believed that it was the it was the real unlocking of that inner power and potential. Finally, I kind of gave in and said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what this guy's all about. <clears throat> and throughout that process, I, it was incredible what happened next. I mean, I, it, it was a combination of me being in great shape, me being you know, assertive and intentional, and also actually actively training my mind. Yeah. which my mind was very busy, very ADHD, had a hard time concentrating on one single task at a time. I was all over the place. I was like a fly just buzzing around the room. And he was able to help me calm down, calm that mind and focus inward in a way that created a pattern so that I could literally lower my heart rate when I was in the heat box before a race, which would then give me more capacity to grow because I wasn't being affected by the nerves and the fear. I was being extremely present. That was my first entrance into the world of sports psych, meditation, mindfulness, all of those things. And it's like I ever became a master of it, but just the simple training and that progress over perfection mindset was, was, was fascinating. And then I had another sports psychologist later on in my career, two years later, his name was Doug Jowdy. And this was the guy who, who actually created real training programs for me mentally. 
Right. And at the what, time, what did that look like as it, for the listeners so who aren't yeah. familiar with it? So this was so cool. So essentially, I walked into Doug's office and I told him, I want to be a machine 100 plus percent of the time. I want to be a machine every single day. I want to be able to manage pain. I want my legs to be like pistons. I want to be un indestructible. That's what I, w- I told him. He's kind of like, oh, right. I, 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 have a, I, got, I got a good one here. This is good. I like it. Um, and he also tells a story that I actually, when I came into his office, I sat in his seat. I sat in his, his chair. And he was, like, the, he was like, he was like, that's my seat. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to sit here. You're and, the boss. Uh, I'm the boss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I just talked to him yesterday about this and he was retelling that story. It was really funny. So anyway, so uh, one of the things that he did was at the time, this is the year 2000, 1999, in 2000, uh, he had a biofeedback device, which essentially was reading all the electrical patterns and waves and energy that is coming in your mind. And it was displaying this on a computer screen. It was re- this back then, this was really cool. Like 20 years ago, this was like mind boggling. And it was like this, this head device that had all these, these sensors that went all around my forehead and all over my whole head. And I remember looking at the computer screen and he's saying, you know, it's this little line. It looks almost like a heartbeat. Right. right, like when you look at one of those one of those screens in the hospital, and instead this was this was reading like the electrical patterns um, uh, that was happening in, in in my mind. When I would blink, it would kind of go crazy. So you know, you wanted to kind of maintain this very calm and cool and collective focus. And when I first started, it was just this buzzy, just like that fly, just up and down, up and down, up and down, rapid motion. And I didn't really know what I was, he, what I was trying to do. And he says, "Well, you want to make the line go almost flat line." like you want to have no vibrational activity, that's when you know you're truly in the flow state. And I was just like, man, I cannot do this at all. And then so he puts it on and he demonstrates for me. Within 20 seconds, this thing is going like this. It goes and just stays static. And I was like, oh my God, this guy, this guy's like a, he's like a monk, right? This guy's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I, I literally, I couldn't do it for like a week straight. I, nothing, there was no change. And then eventually I started to break that habit. And he also gave me a portable device. I forgot the name of this device, but essentially you, you put your, it looked like a mouse. You put your two fingers on it and it had uh, a cord that ran into your ear. So an earpiece. And it started with this sound. The sound was, um, it, depending on the vibration and the electrical excitement, I believe that came through your fingers and your heartbeat, the sound was very high pitched, almost like a e. And for the first three weeks, I thought the sound just went ee, like it, that, that's so the, the more focused and relaxed you became, lower, the lower the, the wave and the tone would be. Mm-hmm. And then a month and a half in, I thought it would just went up and down, just ee, and you know the lower it went, the more focused I was. When I started to really practice this thing by the tutelage of of this sports psychologist, it actually dropped so low it becomes like a metronome, like a tick, tick, tick. And that was like, you know, it's like, it was like a video game to me at that point. It was, I was gamification at the highest level because then mm-hmm. I was really addicted because that's what I wanted every single time I put it on. And so I used to, I became obsessed, man. I mean, I, he talked about visualization. What does it feel like when you close your eyes and you look down? Can you see your laces in your skates? Do, when you rerun a race, a 1500 meters and you close your eyes, do you start to sweat? Can you elevate your heart rate and can you lower your heart rate? And that visualization was so powerful to me. I feel that that 
all of those mindset techniques and trainings and tactics and tools, that was the difference for me. And in that year, 1999 and 2000, I won almost every single race there was to win. I was so dominant. And it was, it was incredible. It was like a light switch, man. It was like just the feeling of being in the zone. I always describe to people as when you watch the original Matrix movies and Neo finds out that he's the one, he can now read the Matrix code. And, you know, Agent Smith is firing the bullets at him and he just starts dodging the bullets in slow motion. That's what it feels like when you're in the zone. To me, it was like the speed and time slows down my brain is processing the information so quickly, it becomes instinctual. Pass here, go on the outside, you know, draft here. And it also becomes very automatic and, and easy. And yeah, simple. you're not like thinking, right? You're just present and you're, you're doing what you do. It, it's a beautiful, it's the most addictive thing, I think, on the planet. And what I didn't realize then was that to get to that stage was years and years and years of work. Right. I'm being able to flip it on and off like a lights. Yeah. I described at the start of the show your incredible resume from a term, from the point of view of how many medals you won. And it sounds like well, I've painted the picture or you've painted the picture of this journey of like young kid, phenom, fall on your face, make a decision, commit, and all of a sudden you become a superstar and you're a superstar forever, right? That once you won your first medal, it wasn't it wasn't like, okay, I'm sorted now. Like there was constant work and constant failure and can you describe a, a moment where you where these lessons and skills and tools that you picked up actually were like, okay, I actually use them here. Like I sometimes refer as as a sweaty palms moment. It's it's a high pressure thing. There's no going back, and but you have to be completely in the moment. And you put those these tools to use. This is later in your career. Does one spring to mind? Well, I think the first one that sprung to mind was my first Olympic Games, my first race at an Olympic Games. So I had been preparing visually and mentally for what the crowd would sound and feel like. There's no replacement. Yeah. I used to play, we had a CD player back then. I used to play the crowd from other Olympic events in my ears. It's like, you know, when you're a speed skater, you don't see that crowd of what that was like. And also having the crowd be home soil. So I remember my first race stepping out. It was the men's 1,000 meters. It was a preliminary round, which means there was actually only three people in the race. Only one I had to beat, this German skater. The other was my rival, this Korean skater. So I just had to be top two position, but I could beat this. As long as I didn't fall down, I feel like I could beat this guy. But I remember stepping on the ice, <clears throat> and this is in Salt Lake City, you know, several months after the September 11th, 9-11 attacks. And Americans were all tuned in to the Olympics. Everyone was watching. And in the arena, people started chanting USA and chanting my name. And I had never had that feeling before. I'm, I'm getting know. goosebumps. It was, it, was, it was incredible. And, you know, I'm 19 years old. I had raced this race a thousand times. I had raced against these guys many, many times. And my heart rate skyrocketed. I mean, it went from probably, it was, should have been like 80. It was like at 170, 180. And I was like thinking in my head and I felt it instantly. My, my suit was soak, soaking wet. And I, and I was thinking almost like loss of breath. I'm like, holy shit. You know, this is a minute and a half long race. You can't start the race being in the state. Like this mm -hmm. is like starting the race like you end it. 
Like you, that's a bad situation to be in. You, you will make a mistake, fall down, or maybe just not even make it past this next round. And I remember the only thing that I could do was I just crouched down, like basically like into the squat position. And I just looked at my feet and the ice and I just started breathing. And that was the training that I had been doing. And that breathing helped lower. Now the heart rate didn't come down as much as I would want it to, but it was, it cut down to like 140. It came came down some. Came down significantly enough to where, okay, I'm here now. Breathe and relax. I've done this before. Um, Don't worry about what could happen. What are you doing right here, right now? And I had a great race. And so that was the first time that I had felt that um, and used that, th- those tactics. And I used them throughout the Illustrious Olympics. And then the real time where I used this was the men's 1,000 meters final. Uh, it was me, five skaters total. I was a favorite to win the race. I was in the first position with about a quarter of a lap remaining, which means that's like two and a half seconds remaining of a minute and a half long race. And I could see the finish line. And I get taken down by another athlete who falls into the back of me and all of us fall down. This is the Stephen Bradbury race. And, you know, position two, three, and four all fall down. Stephen Bradbury, who's a half a lap behind, crosses the finish line first. As I scramble, get to my feet, throw my skates across the line, I win silver. Very confused at this point of what just happened. Adrenaline is pumping. I'm trying to remember what just happened in every capacity. I, I get off the ice. I, sorry, I, I sprint off the ice because I felt like I had cut myself. I wasn't entirely sure. I remember getting in the locker room, ripping my skin suit down and looking at my leg and there was a hole in my leg, right? And it was from my blade. When I'd fallen into the pads, my right leg, like a knife, just came in and basically stabbed my left leg. And it just missed an, an artery, actually. Um there's a hole and it, it was, it was, you know, it was bleeding. And I was like, that's why my leg felt itchy. I mean, that's, that was weird, right? It felt itchy. I just remember that feeling. It was actually itchy. And then they call uh, our trainer into the locker room, Brent Hamula and Brent comes in and he's got this huge smile on his face. He's like, dude, that was the craziest race I have ever seen in my life. And here I am thinking like, man, I didn't, you know, I didn't win gold. I didn't win gold. I didn't win gold. I, I was supposed to win gold. And it was at that moment, and I said, wow, he's right. Like, that was, I didn't lose gold. I won the silver. And, and a reporter later on had asked me that. What does it feel like to lose gold, man, to lose gold medal, lose a gold medal? And I said, I, I, I didn't lose. I, I, I won the silver. And so, you know, it's a, look, it's a play on words. However, the training that I had been doing for so long with Doug and Dave, coupled with the fact that short track speed skating is perhaps one of the most volatile sports um, in the Olympics. You could run the same race four different times and get four different winners. Uh, It trained us to be able to control what we can control and try our best to disregard what we cannot control. Almost like a very stoic philosophy. Prepare as best you can, derive and gain confidence from that preparation. Go out there, create the best possible chance of having success in that race. And then however the cards fall, live with them, accept them as they are. 
there's a you know, and maybe that's a bigger message, a deeper meaning here. But that was what that training allowed me to do was mm. I became so hyper focused on controlling every single millimeter of my performance. But at the end of the day, it was much more about the process versus the prize that I was really after. Yeah. Yeah. The prize was important. We need it. We need the target. You know, you, you, you can't hit the bullseye if you can't see what you're looking at. So you need to have that target. To me, the target was the gold medal. Now, whether I got that target and whether I hit the gold seemingly is not entirely within my control. I can maximize the chance of that. But at the end of the day, there's some unknown circumstances that can come into play in thousands of variables of change that will change that trajectory in the slightest of degrees. And that's what the training helped me deal with was dealing with that failure, dealing with that not winning, and then turning it and using it as an advantage to say, hey, yes, absolutely. I wanted and felt like I was deserving of that gold, but I didn't get it. And that's okay. And I have to move on and I have to appreciate what happened here. Yeah. Uh, and and that was that's hard to do. It's really and it was it was hard to do later on in my career too. It's 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 hard to even imagine being able to do that in that moment with your, your leg bleeding and having a hole in it, a gold medal ripped out of your hands to be able to flip it that quickly is a, an incredible feat in itself. But also, it's a great example of the, I mean the title of your book that I mentioned earlier is really just that summed up that entire philosophy right there. And, and one of the questions I ask every guest we try to get to is, what's your definition of toughness? It's a, in a stoic nature has been mentioned a few times. You brought it up there. Is that part of how you would define toughness in terms of your arena and your life? Or is it much more about being able to say, look, I accept whatever happens, happens. I put my best stuff out there and I have no regrets. That's very tough to do, is to be able to take anything that happens, even when it's shit, and still be like, all right, it is what it is. How do I go out there in my next race and be as good as possible? So my definition of toughness, uh, I think, you know, the zero regrets mentality. You know, when I wrote that book, it, 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 when I tell you I don't have zero regrets, that's not a true statement. I've got many regrets in my life, but the way that I want to live my life is I want to live a life in pursuance of zero regrets. And why that is so powerful and important is you will live your life differently and you will approach challenges and problems and turn them into opportunities when you have that in your life. And your preparation, your intensity, your drive, your love, your happiness, all these elements of what make you a human, you will live them with greater levels of appreciation, gratitude, empathy, all of the above mm. when you approach it in that way. The one common thing that I've noticed whenever I ask someone who's old is, you know, what would you have changed? And they're like, I just, I, I wouldn't have worried as much. I would not have stressed about certain things. I would have instead focused on what I could have controlled and not worried about the things that I could not control. And so the, the, the idea of toughness to me is someone who is able to adapt to the climate that they're in. That can be financially, that can be um, socially and relationship-wise, that can be situation. I mean, whatever it is, your ability to adapt to that environment and change the way that you want that trajectory to be. And that only comes with being able at times to go towards the flame. There's no doubt that we will have many failures in our life. That's, that's for certain. And there are going to be pain. There's going to be loss in your life. That is absolutely for certain. 
And so the only way for you to be able to respond in a way uh, versus react is being able to truly articulate what it is of what's important to you. I think Viktor Frankl said it the best, you know, people who have purpose in their life can walk through any flame. They can cross any chasm, any treacherous time. The human condition is so powerful beyond our wildest imaginations. But you have to tap into that. You have to recognize that. And people who I consider to be incredibly tough are willing to do that. And we all know people who are tough. And, and most of the time, those people have had some real pain and real failure in their life. So for those people who are listening, if you've had, if you have, and when you have real pain and failure in your life, it is all good. Like you need to embrace that. Obviously study it so you don't replicate that situation and pain. Learn from it, but use that as a tool, man. This is nitrous for your car to catapult you in a way that you maybe have never been on fire. Maybe that is the pain that finally says to you, hey, the reason why I can't stick to my January 1st New Year's resolutions is because X, Y, and Z. And you got to have that conversation with yourself in the mirror. You have to be openly transparent and say, you are not perfect. You are vulnerable. You are weak. And that's okay because you can change. You can progress. You can continuously improve but you got to write this stuff down. You got to look in the mirror. You got to have the hard talk. And you also need to be accepting of the fact that you can't win every single race. Nothing wrong with being driven and being obsessed to want to have that perfectionism. But I believe that we seek progress always over perfectionism because perfectionism can become toxic over time. It's a great attribute to have, but if not managed appropriately and effectively, it's a sharp tool like anything else. You can cut yourself. And that's not the goal here. Your goal is to craft something that is beautiful, not to destroy the creator. So cool. So cool the way you described that there. It's, it's a great way to, to bring it, the, the interview to an end. Unfortunately, everything has to end. And we will do that by asking you the question that I normally close with for everyone else. You've kind of touched on it a little bit. I, I have a bit of an idea of where it might go, but what, what's your hope with everything that you've learned from your journey? So much wisdom that you've shared on this episode and, and in your own work what is your hope now that you've done that deep work on yourself both for your own you know here's my projects that i'm working on and buried in you mentioned a couple at the start of the show but also with your ability to be so eloquent and share that wisdom what, why is that important to you and what are you trying to achieve i'm glad you asked that so my 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 new life mission i guess either my, my purpose is i noticed very um early on in my life that I had natural talent and ability and that once I was able to touch my strength and power for my own personal performance, it was, it was unlimited. And there were so many others around me that I felt also had that potential, but they didn't believe it. They didn't see it. They didn't know that they was there. So my, person, my, my, my passion and purpose in life is to help unlock that inner potential that's within people. And sometimes they need insights, sometimes they need guidance, sometimes they need direction, sometimes they just need you to give them a book. And you know, I developed something called the five golden principles, which number one is gratitude, number two is giving, giving 
to others, but also giving yourself a chance. So self-sabotage is a big part of that is, is giving yourself a chance. So don't, don't, don't obstruct your direction because you're afraid of what's going to happen. Like mm-hmm. don't be complicit in your own actions and then wonder why you were in this situation, right? So you've got gratitude, you've got giving, you've got grit. That's the toughness element. It's require. It's a true requirement and it can be trained consistently. Uh, number four, is gearing up your personal expectations. So whatever was fundamentally the standard before, the only way you're going to progress is to to level up. You got to level up, man. And number five is to get into action, to go get after it. And I think those principles to me, I, I hopefully will give to people who are struggling right now, who've been furloughed, who've been laid off, who are having financial difficulty, who are having difficulty in general, who are in pain mentally and don't have to do it alone. They can, they can reach out. There's tons of resources out there, whether they are an athlete suffering from mental health and, and, and depression or whatever those issues are, whether it's someone who is having a severe loss of identity and a crisis around, I was so good for 20 years at something. This is what I felt like I was put on earth for. Now moving forward, I need to go this direction. Um, I had that as an Olympic athlete, right? 10 years ago, I retired. And I would say just in the past three years, I finally was like, ah, ah, I get it. I get it. This is the direction I'm going in now. This is a new chapter. So my purpose, man, is I want to give people their own pen and pad and begin really writing their own story. And you may not get every single thing that you put on that piece of paper, but I just believe that if you really, really want something and you really commit to something, the path there is so powerful that maybe the real fruits were not the metric or the bullseye that you had. Maybe the real fruits were the path and the process of you committing and going through that for the next few years. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I would love to do. And that's what I'm doing now. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. That, that last little thing there about the fruits that you might want, maybe not being the thing that it's all about. Uh, RIP Chadwick Boseman, who passed away very recently, is a great example of that, who, who started out by going to directing school. He didn't want to act. Someone saw in him something that he didn't know he had and the rest is history. He's one of the greatest actors of our time and, and inspired millions. Um, you're doing the same with your own, uh, your own little twist there and that's an incredible purpose. Obviously, living it every day and that's fantastic. Um, really appreciate you sharing your stuff with us, with the audience. There are many people who are going to learn stuff from this episode, but if they do want to track you down and find you, where is the best place to go and do that? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, you can find me at Apollo Ono on Instagram, um, at Apollo Ono. I have another uh, Facebook page, um, official uh, at Apollo Ono. And I've got Twitter, at Apollo Ono. So, um, and my website, ApolloOno.com. All right, thanks very much, Paul. I appreciate you being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So why is it got to be so damn uh, Excellent, busting with the best in there. Simply impressive, no worrying or stressing. Uh, I'm getting my right now. Shades on and let me show you how. Yeah.